Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. All right, welcome back to another episode of Roots and Ruminants podcast. I'm Justin Frickty, sitting down with Jared Knock once again. And uh, Jared and I today are in Brookings, and we just got done... Um, getting an education about the alfalfa industry. And so we're sitting down with Mike Veldy, and Mike's from uh, Wisconsin. We'll have him give a nice introduction. Um, but Mike's been just a really great mentor in the alfalfa industry uh, for us as far as uh, teaching us the, the world of alfalfa management systems, the seed industry. Um, he has a ton of knowledge, and we're going to hear about it today. He's going to go back in time of, of where he started within the industry and, and kind of give us a, some tidbits of the management and uh, where we're going within this industry too. So with that, uh, I'm going to just have Mike introduce himself, uh, where he's at today, and uh, then we'll get into the rest of the podcast with some more questions. So take it away, Mike. This is a quite an honor to be able to visit with you this, this afternoon. Uh, Mike Veldy, I work with Legacy Seeds. I worked with them the last six years with with them in uh, out of Wisconsin. My, my history is primarily with uh, a company called Dairyland Seed. I was an alfalfa breeder for them uh, from 1980 to 1916, 40, 36 years. It's fantastic. Wonderful career uh, to be able to develop new products for the dairymen and the beef producers across the country. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us about, uh, you know, maybe even going back before the start of your career, when did uh, alfalfa breeding become, you know, commonplace? When did uh, folks say, well, here's a plant, you know, a lot of the plants that, you know, Milborn might sell in the native spectrum haven't really been improved, right? We just took a subculture. Alfalfa has been an improved crop. When did we start improving it as an, in, as an industry? And how has that progressed, you know, maybe at the point or prior to your career starting even? Again, there's been a lot of progress in the improvement of alfalfas. I'm thinking back, um, some of the first varieties, variety developed out of Wisconsin, it called Vernal. That was the, that was released the year I was born back in 1956. Other improvements is out of Nebraska. Um, Ranger is a line out of, out of there. Uh, there's some native species that would, native varieties coming out of Russia that were brought into South Dakota. Uh, I know Vern, uh, I think it's Mr. Hansen. I don't remember his first name. Nils, Nils Hansen. Nils Hansen. Yeah, that's, that's, Hansen. that's right. He brought some yeah. of the products over. Yeah. I think uh, we've talked and to him. And Kosha. He brought Kosha too. So yeah. there's good and bad. You know, there's good and bad. <laughs> but this, the more the, more the aggressive varieties called, uh, were brought into New York. One variety, early variety of that was called Saranac, which was oh, a, yeah. more, more of a um, moderately winter hardy, but more aggressive growth. Uh, vernal types were more winter dormant and more persistent. So there's been a lot of improvement from from uh, industry. Most of those are based out of uh, was most out of university type of uh, trialing and research that's sure. that put those together. Mm-hmm. So the the breeding program has probably started at the university level at the land grant universities correct, correct. when this whole thing started. Correct. When did that become uh, something that became more important to? private companies and maybe less important to public universities? Well, uh, uh, again, the private companies, are they, they, they invest for the, the, in the future. Uh, some of the early plant breeders was, uh, I, remember, I remember when I was just starting, there was one called North American Alfalfa, North American Plant Breeders. They were developed, they were out of Iowa. Uh, WL was a, one of the earlier pioneers in developing uh, alfalfas. And I'm trying to think who else would have been in the private side, who who else would be doing that? So 
There's probably other ones. I just can't remember them who they are. Yeah. What when you mentioned Vernal and Ranger and Cernak, I mean those are still varieties that people ask about and yeah. want to plant today. So yeah. what were some of the good things about them that you still see today? Maybe they're relevant. Maybe they're not at all relevant. But I think they like the they like the name just because yeah. it's familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and my yeah. grand grandfather planted them, and they did fine for them. Right. Yeah. And I think you know they were they were okay. They were good for their time. Sure. Uh, we made a lot of improvements beyond yeah. their capabilities, but there's still quite a bit, quite a bit, quite a bit, quite a few pounds of them sold by by name. Yeah, it's like heirloom tomatoes. You know, just got a got a nice thought to it. You know, yeah. It just rolls, rolls right. off your tongue yeah. real well. Why right. is it that it, when people plant alfalfa, they think back to things that their dad or granddad did, but that's not relevant at all with selecting corn or soybean varieties. Even the yeah. way they do it. People do. are like, you're, you know, they ask the question, should I do an orchard crop or not? I mean, my grandpa was used to do it, so I probably should, right? Yeah. You're like, well, why does that have any relevance? Right. You're, you're, yeah, you're, your dad used a three-row corn picker, right? You know, like yeah. you're not tempted to do that. Right. You know, <laughs> you're not yeah. going to want to plant the same varieties that, that he did. You yeah. wouldn't yeah. dream of it. We have the same issues as the grass industry, uh, Potomac, mm. Orchard Grass, you know, some of these old, old varieties that are, that that's, they've seen better days, but they still like to, they, they like to plant those. A lot of them are planted because they're cheap yeah. and they haven't, they haven't appreciated the value of the better grasses or the better alfalfas. So is it a myth or a fact that the winter hardiness of vernal is better than today's improved varieties. That's a myth. Myth. Okay. That's a myth. Well, myth busted. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the vernal planted today, again, the disease packages of our new alfalfas are so much better. Sure. And it's usually, it's usually the disease that takes it out more so than the winter hardiness. Mm. Mm, that's another good thought. Like expound on that. Cause I think we, we think that it's the winter, the winter kill that thins alfalfa stands over time. Right. I mean, and things like that, but tell us, tell us what you're really meaning behind that. Well, the plant's got to be healthy going into the winter. <clears throat> So the more disease resistant it has to be able to protect itself from pathogens that are in our soils, the healthier the plant is. Are plants are, sure. and I think our our fertility is much better than it was back when they were planting the, uh, the vernals and and those types of alfalfas. And in back in back in the days, they only cut vernal in Wisconsin maybe two or three times a year, and we'll, we're cutting four four to five times a year. So it's put a lot of stress on them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's the 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 thinning is a you know symptom of, of of winter kill. I mean, it's not the the true cause. the The winter hardiness is really just the preparation uh, to defend off natural pests, not necessarily roots dying from frost damage or things like that. Or is the, it both? So it's it's a it's a overall health of the plant. Okay. So the the, the disease resistance helps protect it from the pathogens, mm. and the management will help protected as it goes into the winter so we know a lot more about how when to leave a resting period in the fall to get the plants recharged for winter mm-hmm. and uh and we have a lot more options today on should i cut in the fall or not cut in the fall you know how much risk and how much risk reward we're telling our people they should uh, take a look at before they're making a decision mm-hmm. great yeah what about quality plant quality digestibility what what are the new varieties um even some of the higher yielding ones how do they compare to the varieties from 50 years ago? Oh, quite a bit difference. You know, our main goal, one of our main focus is we want tonnage, but we want tonnage that's palatable. And uh, a lot of, lot of, a lot of plant breeders have worked quite a while extensively in selecting plants that will have the certain attributes for better forage quality, especially for the dairy, dairy and beef operations. They want, they always want to have better quality forages. And, uh, and we, and also harvesting is quite a bit different than it was back when our parents, grandparents har- harvested alfalfa. 
for them if they, they want to see full flower before they cut. And here we want to see just late buds exposed. That's the, to be able to get us the better quality forage. So, so maturity of a plant definitely changes quality of hay. Oh, every, no day, every day, every day. What, from a breeding standpoint, can you select for that improves quality of the hay? What we can do is we can, we can uh, check, we can breed for protein. Okay. Uh, changes in protein. We can do, we, we breed for reduced fiber, more, more of a digestible fiber. And a lot of that is measured with terms called like uh, neutral, deter, neutral, neutral detergent fiber or NDFD, the digestible fiber. And, um, and also stem size makes a difference in how, how, how easy it is for the cattle to, di- to digest it. Right. So coarser stems, less digestible, but maybe more yield? Or how does that look? Uh, if again, you have a bigger app, bigger structure of the plant, you can get more tons. Sure. Yeah, but you know, really, as tonnage is, fool, we can be fooled looking at yield because it's the density of the stand, uh-huh. and how how many lateral buds, how many lateral stems coming off the off the stock, and this the density it makes a big difference for yield and quality. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, we're not we're not in to breed toothpicks. We want to breed highly <laughs> highly quali- highly highly digestible products. Yeah. How about going back from when you started to now? You know, as far as advancements within the alfalfa industry, what what have you seen as some of the most forward-thinking thoughts that have came into fruition and actually made sense in a production egg setting? Actually, I think that I think I'm going to break it down into a number of items. One is uh, equipment today is so much better than we did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. We can we can. We can, we can swath a lot of acres at a time, get it crimped correctly. We have equipment that will merge it correctly so we don't get as much dirt in the hay. Uh, we can have harvesters come in and, you know, take off um, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 acres in a day or, or more so we can get it off quickly. And so a lot of that hay is put up in, in, in bunker silos so we can get it off, you know, cut one day or get it up the same day or even the next day. So our quality is much, our ability to produce, put a, produce high quality off forages is pretty, is very good. Uh, and if you're out west, we, can, we, have, I, we have balers now that you pull a humidifier ahead of them so they can bale all day long. So they can utilize the equipment much better than they could in the past versus baling all night long. And we, we, we have ways to get the bales wrapped if they're wet. So we can make sure we can do a better job. If we have to be, if you have to bale wetter, you can wrap them up and kind of preserve the quality that's in the hay. So I think a lot of our gain is based on we have just better equipment today and better knowledge and how to how to set the equipment to make sure we get you know capture the value of the forages that we have outside of the genetic potential. Um, genetic the genetic potential we've we've improved them for yield and and uh, quality uh, well, we made incremental in, incremental group improvements on those two attributes and along with protecting the yield both with better disease resistance and better winter hardiness so again uh also a lot of there's the education to grow half alpha is quite a bit better so we can be able to capture the value that we're trying to breed into it would you say that uh the demand for alfalfa or the matrix has changed. It seems like in our part of the world, <clears throat> once people had access to modified or wet distillers grains, 
now all of a sudden it used to be always managed around, you know, protein. Now you manage for energy, but it seems like more people were willing to, well, they had to buy a little energy anyway. They take the protein out of the distillers and then the alfalfa acres kind of contract a little bit. Now we're seeing talk, a lot more talk of expansion, a few months of ethanol plants being kind of hit or miss intermittently open in the beef cattle world where it wasn't an available supply. Thinking about the fertilizers that we're using coming from 12,000 to 14,000 miles away on cargo ships and ships that don't always get unloaded on time or arrive on time and cost three times more. Are you seeing more demand just in the last five, six months um, and questions around producing more protein and more forage from alfalfa as opposed to more of a nitrogen intensive crop like grass or corn? Well, I think we're seeing a combination that um, we're looking at in our, in our forages. We're, I think there's, there's a lot of interest in growing straight alfalfa, mm-hmm. which is very marketable. Again, there's always a great market for high quality hay put up correctly. So if you're working on that, you can always get it sold. It's, and um, you can always get good top dollar for it. There's, there's interest now in alfalfa grass mixtures because the grass is a little bit more digestible than uh, more soluble fiber than alfalfa is. But alfalfa itself has, nice, has a nice scratch factor in the rumen to keep the, the, the rumen healthy. The interest in alfalfa is always going to be there. I would, I would think, but, uh, the, uh, but different dairies have different priorities on how they use the, the alfalfa in their rations. They're, the rations are a very high corn silage, but we need to have some legume in the, legumes in there to uh, balance out the rations. Tell us more about that grass mixture with alfalfa, because it seems like we maintain alfalfa stands pretty well in a grass mixture for a lot longer than the you know four, five, six years that we would normally rotate out of on a pure stand. And I'm guessing from what you're telling me now, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that if we have grass in there, you know, typically we're not cutting quite as often. So maybe we're not, you know, as intensely utilizing that, but I could be wrong. What does that management of alfalfa look like differently if you put some grasses in there? And what are some common grasses that people would, would see in other parts of the country? The gra- grasses that are being popular for, for alfalfa grass mixes in uh, our part of the country, Midwest, uh, they like the, the meadow and tall fescue. They like it because it's a high-quality forage and it has uni- more uniform production throughout the growing season. So it's not a, just a big first crop like like brome or timothy or something like that. So it's more uniform across cutting regimes. Uh, if you've got wetter soils, some re-canary, whether it's a good or, good grass or not that's being used. Uh, there's still people love orchard grass. You know, mm-hmm. Again, when you look at grasses, you always get the best stuff because there's a big difference in the old commons, Potomac orchard grass or something like that, the old commons, their quality is so much better now than they were using those older ones there. So always get always get the better products. Uh, the reason I think alfalfa use, they use alfalfa grass mixes is a lot of its soil variability. And uh, putting a little bit of grass in there increases, increases the tonnage. One thing I would always before I jump into a project like that, make sure with the, what your livestock one is is the best product for your livestock or if you're selling your hay, what does the markets want for your hay or how are you going to store it? That makes a difference because uh, if you put it in a pile and you put a lot of grass in there, it's tough to pack a pile. Mm-hmm. So make sure you do all your homework before you, you make any adjustments like that. But uh, but, the, but the, having a little bit of grass in there will help, definitely help get your tonnage, you have better quality forage. But don't put too much grass in there, just enough, to, just uh, no more than maybe four pounds of grass. Yeah, sure. Sure. Is that, uh, is my assumption, have you seen that at all, that the, the grass alfalfa stands maybe uh, stay viable a little bit longer than a straight alfalfa stand, or is that just 
Well, grass is pretty durable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I would I would not reduce my rotation. I would not lengthen my rotation sure. because of having grass because yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of advantage of rotation. Mm-hmm. And alfalfa's strength is probably in the first second production year is the highest yielding period of time in his life. Mm-hmm. So going well beyond four years, I, don't, I think you're really giving up yield by keeping the alfalfa stand in there, even if you have grass with your alfalfa. So it's not a sin to rotate, but there's a lot of benefits, especially on fertility rotations with the nitrogen credits you get with alfalfa. Sure. In South Dakota, we have a contest of the person who can keep the stand of alfalfa in place the longest and the winner is not yet to be determined because there's a lot of people <laughs> in that 30, 40 year plus range yeah. <laughs> uh, that are keeping it going. Little grass, a lot yeah. of bluegrass out there now, a uh, little thin, but uh, we all know who we are on this podcast and listening to it. And when you can count wheels. the individual plants of alfalfa looking from the road, <laughs> it's time to rotate. Somebody's going to get lose break the right soon. Yeah. Everybody's in a tie right now, yeah. but so we'll determine a winner sometime in the next few decades. <laughs> we know the final. I think it's a series of not the best choices you're making. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, again, I would, you know, even in this part of the country, probably a, a four or five year, maybe max rotation mm-hmm. to keep the sands fresh, to be able to utilize the nitrogen credits to plant a, a grass crop like corn or some crop like that. True. There's a lot of, a lot of advantage with that. So does that, that nitrogen credit, that's, you know, you know, back to what I had brought up a little bit before, but, but even a better point, you talk about using that nitrogen credit because we'll build that nitrogen credit, but is there a big advantage to that nitrogen credit, whether we are in rotation for four years or for eight years, or is it similar and we can use it more times if we keep using the rotation? I think you're better off rotating earlier mm-hmm. because there's more, there's more alfalfa mm-hmm. in the rotation. And with just trying to grow a crop of corn after alfalfa rotation there, that's been at least been in the ground at least two years. Uh, you can grow about a year and a half's worth of nitrogen for a crop of corn and about a 10% yield bump. So that's a huge option, especially the cost of nitrogen these days. Can you go through the um, physiological stage of the alfalfa plant and when it starts to develop nodules in the plant and how that just go through the nitrogen fixation cycle of an alfalfa plant, if you would. Well, there's, there's rhizobia. We, we, as an industry, we, we generally add rhizobia to the seed, so it's inoculated. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And also there's a native flora of rhizobia that's in the soil. So if you're on a rotation that had nitrogen, that had alfalfa in the past, there's also rhizobia, rhizobia from there. So rhizobia fixes, once, it, once it's out of the ground, once it's coming out of the ground, it's starting to fix nitrogen right away. So it's pretty aggressive. Uh, the, 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 the rhizobias will fix until there's some kind of stress on the plant, like cutting it. And a lot of, after cutting, a lot of them just slough off and they re- reattach themselves when the plant's starting to grow again. So the, a lot of the nitrogen comes back in through uh, some of the sloughing off of the rhizobia because you put an alfalfa grass together, the grass is fed with the rhizobia sloughing off, creating nitrogen for the grass production. That's an awesome point. Yeah, so so the grass is fed from the alfalfa growing. Yeah, because yes. you look at it, you look at an alfalfa grass mix. The grass yes. is nice, nice, always bright, nice color, green, straight alfalfa with straight grass without with alfalfa. It's kind of yellow if it's not if you don't put nitrogen with it. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of behind a little bit? Part of it's the choking out aspect, but part of it's that proper ratio. You know, four pounds of of grass to sixteen pounds of alfalfa. Kind of that right ratio of how much grass alfalfa can feed in the proper. 
Well, I, th- I think it's uh, alfalfa is gra- grass is pretty aggressive, mm. so you know, eventually there's a takeover period of time. And uh, if you had a, you, I think you, you go. And I'm speaking a lot off off the cuff here. If you go like four or five years with an alfalfa grass mix, it's pretty grassy. Yeah. So you can put grass in. Uh, most most people put a little bit of grass in there to maintain, to not choke out the alfalfa, but enhance the alfalfa. Mm-hmm. And um, and not and people put too too much in there right away. It, it just overwhelms the alfalfa. And the stands the length of the alfalfa stand is pretty pretty short. Since we're on the topic of fertility, can you talk about phosphorus and alfalfa and the need of it and like the removal rate of, you know, a, a four ton per acre yield on alfalfa and then your requirement from phosphorus there and just what that does within your, your field system? Uh, phosphorus, I, I'm coming back into where the dairies are at. We have a lot of phosphorus in our soils and our issues we want to get, we want to use it up. Sure. Through the manure aspects. Yeah. Uh, alfalfa is a big user of potash. I think it's about 60 pounds of potash per ton, which is a big user for and they use that. It's mainly for winter hardiness. I'm trying to think what the, uh, the usage of phosphorus is right off the hand. I can't, I can't recall right off the hand, but they all have important aspects in alfalfa production. Yeah, so we don't need nitrogen so much, but certainly just because we're producing our nitrogen doesn't mean that we have a distinct need for nutrient application, removing all that biomass. Right. Removal of biomass requires Mm -hmm. a lot of fertilizer. Potash and phosphorus. Yeah, yeah. One thing that a lot of our soils are, our soil, actually air quality is actually very good now. And what's what's taken out of the air is a lot of sulfur. Mm. I remember back back in the 60s, 70s, Probably before your time, they were talking about acid rain from the... Oh, yeah. We yeah. were told about that. In weekly like readers. Scholastic, yeah, Scholastic Weekly Readers. Right. Captain Planet told us about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Lots yeah. of people told us about acid yeah. rain. Acid rain. So, we wouldn't, so there was enough, there was enough yeah. sulfur coming in through the rain. And right now, our, our air is cleaner, so we have to add sulfur to the ground, which, yeah. is, which is a better plan than acid rain. Well, but the acid rain was free. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> well, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, you're right. It's, it's better to do that. Yeah. Now what changed alkali. that? Now we're getting, it's rain's getting too alkali. Yeah. Yeah. Why, did that, why did that change? Clean air. The why did that ultra change? low sulfur diesel requirements. Remember? Does that change it? Yeah, used to use sulfur to lubricate Come on. diesel. That yeah, didn't, right. that wasn't that. That's probably, that's probably one. A lot of, the, oh, lot of, lot of industries had better cleaning, better yeah. environmental okay. cleaning. That's my idea. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, I think you're, it's sure part, it's of, it's part of it. Part of it, yeah. Volcanoes, yeah. maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Sam, what do you know about volcanoes? Can you look that up, Sam? Look up uh, volcanoes, uh, acid, or sulfur release. Yeah, we need one of those producers that feeds you f- yeah. fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> maybe <laughs> we got that. Go. Sam, are you that? Jamie. That's what Joe Rogan has. Jamie. Yep. Jamie. Jamie, look that up. Do, do you want to fact check? Oh, they're usually on video. We have a big screen here. You just can't see us at all. And it's not in the big screen either. So anyway, we'll get that answer to where the sulfur reductions came from pretty soon. That was back in the 80s. It started, yeah, to, get, it started yeah. to improve. Huh. Yeah. They still wanted to scare us in the 90s, though. That's for sure. With the you sulfur I mean? rains. Yeah, we went from right from acid rain to the ozone layer. I think that was still the there. progression. Yeah. yeah. I used to entertain uh, Chinese delegations come to our research farm. Uh-huh. What they were most amazed is they can look up in the sky and it's blue. Yeah. And I, my travels to China, it was, I can see why they said that. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's our area our is pretty clean. Tough. Where did, uh, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started, but just as a quick aside, uh, 
what parts of China were you looking at when you were kind of moving some alfalfa over there, probably when they started to take, uh, you know, cattle raising seriously and growing their dairy industry. Mm-hmm. But where were they looking at uh, putting those alfalfa fields at? What part of the country? So I, st- I, was, I, I was over there probably in the 2012 and to 2016, something mm. like that. A number of times I went over there. Yep. And uh, we, were, we were moving. We flew into Beijing. We went uh, up north toward Harbin. North, mm-hmm. northeast yeah. toward Harbin, and then right in the central part of the country. Okay, uh, they were trying to they were tearing out uh, prairies to plant alfalfa, mm-hmm. and it, this it's and put in irrigation so they could it, it worked for a while, but there was no snow cover at all. It was just cold, mm. and uh, they were not, they were not good about leaving the stubble there. So no. they cut it out in the fall, and they would, the ground got so frozen it just killed everything. Yeah, and. Um, but they they got other areas that were growing some alfalfa growing alfalfa in. So I think their practices are they're getting wiser in how they yeah. how they handle their alfalfa. But I would say from Beijing, every, uh, south southwest, straight west, and uh, up toward the northeast is where a lot of the alfalfa was grown. Heilongjiang Province by Harbin. Yeah, that's a it's a cool place. Mm-hmm. I've been traveled through there. Uh, very neat. And also keep in mind a lot of alfalfa export to China still. Right? Yes, very much so. A lot of it. Yeah, um, so that means they're that means they're not getting, they're not able to raise enough. Not raising enough. Uh, one thing too is they can they can raise nice hay, but they, there's they don't have the infrastructure to move hay. Yeah, and there's, they have to share the roads with donkeys and sure. cars and tractors and well, even baling. You know what I mean? Even getting it compressed, right? You know, in in small paddocks, small fields, small farms would be rather difficult. I think well, they 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 can get equipment. Oh. But once once they get the bales made, they yep. they have to move it miles in the road. It's okay. It's a challenge. Big squares, yeah. All big squares. Yeah, big mostly squares. big squares. Yeah. Do they do they import any alfalfa pellets or is it all alfalfa hay? I think it's all hay. Huh. They they import a lot of hay. Logistically, a pellet would be much easier to import. Uh, maybe yeah, but they they probably use a lot of soybean. They so oil. I mean, they use a lot of soybean meal for hog production, obviously. But like they use so much soybean oil, you know. It's a big, big part of their diet. So they might end up with a lot of meal there. So okay. they just need the scratch. Uh-huh. I mean, there's just, there's no other forages available in that country. Like, I'm surprised, like, there they were still prairies, fiber. you know, in, like, you know, Gansu, Shanxi, province. Like, I don't know where you'd find a prairie outside of Inner Mongolia. Like They, they were up in Inner Mongolia. Oh, that's where they were. That's oh. where they are. Yeah, yeah, and I was there, and that should not be probably broke up. No, no. Yeah, it's not great. It was prairie. It's a reason why it's prairie. Yeah. They wanted to grow potatoes on it. Oh, that's a bad idea. Uh, Did they? No, they didn't okay. get that far. Okay, good. <laughs> <Be> <laughs> yeah. bad. So I, I suggested some some research strategies of just planting some grass with the alfalfa to slow yeah. the wind down, and then leaving the stubble there, and that didn't get very far. So anyway, hmm. yeah, no, they don't like to listen all the time. Like that, they like want to hear what you have to say, but they don't always want to listen. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, the people that, the people were very friendly. I thought when I was there. Yeah, yeah, uh, they thought I was from Russia. Ah, <laughs> did did they try and uh, take make you take shots all the time? Oh man, that's yeah. terrible. That's terrible. That's, that's absolutely terrible. It's just the worst kind of drink. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> Baijiu, sorghum whiskey with awesome. perfume in it. Yeah. Like like take a little bottle, of, like the cheapest gram of perfume you can find, and like <sighs> dump it in the bottle. I think it's really gross. yeah. Anyway, has the alfalfa <laughs> breeding industry ever afforded you some other travels? Uh, and, we did some work in China. No, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, uh, uh, Chile, Argentina. Oh. Okay, yeah, 
wherever we yeah, wherever we can breed and have products for the area. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of breeding an alfalfa, a variety of alfalfa mm-hmm. or strain, or what what's the comp, what's the right? It's term? a it's a variety. Variety. Yep. It's a variety. So, so how do you keep that separate from other varieties, and how do you breed those within that? I mean, well, there's a process of isolation. Okay. And so our, I just go through our breeding strategy that I, we work with in our present company is is predominantly uh, populations, and these populations are each individual plant is evaluated for uh, pathology, uh, agronomic traits. How does how does it grow? What kind of mm-hmm. tonnage it has? What kind of forage quality that each individual plant will have? And from that, we can determine which populations to put together to have a trait that we want to get with a certain certain type of variety. Uh, to keep the seeds separate, we generally do, we do everything in the West, predominantly in Idaho, and we put uh, uh, kind of netting around the cages with bees inside to interpollinate interpollinate plants and keep outside genetics in from that from that plant. Yeah, trap the bees in. We trap the bees in. Okay. And then we from stray bees, we try the netting is to keep the bees out. Okay. So they don't bring in any any, any foreign pollen that we don't want huh. in, into our products there. And then we have to go to certain areas of the country to grow it from the first cross to the second cross, population cross. And then we then we go into certification, certified production, which there we bump up because it's the, just, uh, the genetic shift of the variety is pretty stable by then. Okay. Uh-huh. What is the, the bee? Is it a leafcutter bee? Leafcutter so, bees. And that's the only bee that can pollinate off of uh, The, 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 the honeybees, they just kind of fool around a lot. Okay. A leaf cutter is a really good pollinator. Yeah, they just come and they start, start they just start tripping. It's huh. a, it's a small bee. They okay. kind of, they kind of bite you. Oh, yeah. They don't sting you. They bite you. Get them, leave them inside the net. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But they're they're <laughs> good pollinators. Yeah. Huh. Uh, a good pollinator is an alkali bee, which is in the state of Washington. They live in the ground, and they 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 raise alkali bees for pollinating alfalfa alfalfa seed, and that's pretty rare to have that. Uh, another good bee is a bumblebee. Which does oh. does a real good job pollinating uh, pretty much any crop. They're they're, okay. they're just a big big bee. But the honeybees aren't that great. They they have a hard time. They don't want to get oh. that. They don't want to get bombarded with honey, with uh, pollen. Oh. They just want the nectar, so they're able to to feed the nectar and pull the nectar out without tripping the oh, plant. I see. Yeah, they don't make enough of a mess. And the bumblebee's probably big. Yeah. So it it's accidentally bam, trips it. it. Just yeah. So that they work really well. I like bumblebees. Stumbling all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> but they're they're tough to raise. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty much native native population of bumblebees. Okay. Fascinating. Plus how many flowers, how much how much nectar do you think they have to eat a day? You I mean they gotta be like every flower. A bumblebee? A bumblebee. Just to stay alive. Yeah. You know? Somebody knows that. Yeah. Somebody knows that, yeah. Not we'll get an know. entomologist on here someday. Oh, this we should. This is a fun topic, actually. Let's do that. Yeah. Very I pertinent have in world. I have somebody in mind. Okay, right. good. Hey, I, okay, y- you started, well, when we first started this podcast, you're mentioning who you've been with in the industry and who you're working for now. Can you talk about some of those? Just like, I mean, this is a small world now. Yeah. As far as breeding and, and even genetic lines of alfalfa that's available to the consumer. Can you talk about some of those Acquisition. Who is left in the breeding world of alfalfa? Well, right now, it's again. There's been a lot of change, as as any any industry that has. You know, there used to be a lot of car do, car brands. Now it's down to a certain few. Um, and same with any other products. So when I first started back, I started back in 1980. I counted I, I counted up 13 alfalfa breeding companies that were viable when I started, and there may be more than that. But now we're actually through acquisitions and mergers and stuff. Right now, we're down to four. 
that are, are active breeding alfalfa, alfalfa plants. And uh, each, again, each one is, each one is kind of diff- gone a different path, which is all good. It's, I think it's good for the c- consumers so they have different types of alfalfas. Some have gone biotech, some are gone um, just conventional breeding, serving their in-house accounts. Other ones are conventional breeding, serving in-house and outside accounts. And uh, some, some breeding fall, fall dormancy 2 through 10 dormancies, and some are just working on uh, dormant alfalfas, mm-hmm. working on their specialties. So four alfalfa breeding companies. Any idea how many brands of alfalfa, how many different brands there are? There's quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> the, the number of kinds of bags have increased as the number of breeders has decreased. That might be true. true. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. So it allows our organization, Millborn Seeds, to carry all these different, you know, high quality bred up alfalfas, yep. right? Out of yep. one of the major, mm-hmm. if not the major company of alfalfa breeding. It's fantastic, you know, for us to be able to have that relationship. Yeah. For sure. Because was it was it like that when you came into the industry though? Those thirteen breeders, were they also the marketers? Uh no. Okay. I would say they were still probably a third of them are sell directly to themselves. Okay. The other other rest would be try to wholesale their, their varieties, wholesale their varieties out. Yep. Yep. So let's go back to uh, the system of, and this is we're 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 really changing topics here. But in this podcast, a lot of times we're talking about these whole system management strategies and uh, really a a healthy farm and what does it look like and focusing on soil health and making sure we're diverse within our crop rotations and having livestock on the land. When I look at Wisconsin and think about that farming system, and maybe it's not quite this way right now, but certainly it was 15 years ago where um, there was many farms on a section of land and, and each of those farms had livestock, mainly dairy cattle. They had alfalfa. They probably had a small grain. They had corn, and they probably didn't have beans, but maybe they did. But they, they at least had a, probably a, a three, maybe a four-crop rotation, and they had livestock. And when we think about what that does for soil health, we've got manure. We've got crop diversity. Um, what, what have you seen, being in Wisconsin, have you seen a big shift of of – with some of that changing, um, less of a focus on soil health, what that has done in terms of that landscape and just kind of your thoughts of what that landscape is now. Uh, the big challenge with the, the, the cow populations are con- more concentrated and uh, manure management is a huge issue. For runoff is a huge issue. Uh, water quality that our waters aren't being contaminated with nitrates. That, I think that's been a bigger issue than I think the, the people tried their best to maintain the quality of land uh, as best they can. Some years are so wet, you know, they have to get rid of manure and the fields are running up. You know, again, they just grit your teeth and do this because they have to, they have to do it. But I think, I think the desire is to make sure they preserve their land the, the best they can. But the, 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 the livestock enterprises are, you know, you got dairy, that's, that's your observ- observation. So the, the issue of the family farm that has multiple operations, it's pretty it's, there's still some viable, but not as many as, as, as it was. And it's not as uniformly spread across the state right now, you know, because a lot of good milking areas is the cooler temperatures off Lake Michigan. There's a lot of cows, a lot of dairies right along the lake. And there's more, again, they're just more, just more, if you got a dairy, there's higher populations of cows. So it just makes a greater degree of complexity of uh, 
how you handle manure. A lot of a lot of manure management. How how where you get where do you get crops from and things like that. Yeah, and then you run into like you know places that we would see to the west of us where you know just a a shortage of nutrients, a shortage of manure. You know fields that haven't you know in a non livestock dense area that haven't had you know manure applied to them in 50 60 years and that shows too oh yeah I mean, manure is very healthy for the soil oh for sure yeah 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 i say we have a you know definitely a problem with not enough manure in a lot of places a lot of cropping areas and that's yeah. where you know our phosphorus levels can get so low yeah. that we you know if you don't have if you really stay up on a commercial phosphorus utilization program or try and cycle those nutrients through grazing or through manure application um but that's what's gonna you know so when you export a third of the soybeans from the United States to China, and most of it comes from this part of the country, right? You look at North Dakota, you know, what percentage of their soybeans go to China? You export the nutrients. It's not like you're going to bring hog manure back, right. you know, from China to put mm-hmm. back out mm-hmm. there. You kind of broke the cycle a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, definitely places that need a lot more livestock. And then some, like I said, where the challenge is, is that the density is maybe too great, yeah, you know, greater so. than, than it's easy to maintain. Yep. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those rotations in Wisconsin, when they're looking at, you know, a forage only, high high livestock density, especially like high dairy density, you're looking at a alfalfa, four-year four alfalfa, corn, corn, alfalfa again for four years, or what What do a lot of those rotations look like? Um, actually, more, I think more of them are three years. Okay. Uh, right. Mainly because we, we need the land to get to apply manure sure so get get you get you a couple windows you can apply manure before you plant alfalfa and you can apply manure after you plant the alfalfa we're trying to keep them from planting to apply manure to the fields but they is the pits full or they got to go someplace within right yeah generally they go usually you go a couple years of uh, silage corn and maybe have a, a small grain crop or something like that in there mm. so those f- lot Fall or spring plantings are a little bit of both, or uh, I would say majority of spring. Yeah, yeah. How, how come we can't support that in in today's market? How come we can't support that? You know, I mean, I, I gave this, you know, kind of the opening of boy, this is a great system, yeah. but that system is going away. Yeah, it doesn't. I, so, it's mm, a good point. You know, Justin's point of of saying you know, these family farms, 200 head, 150 head dairies, right? Or 50 head dairies, you know, yeah. why, you know, with that rotation, that efficiency, that robustness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We like a lot of the things they're doing. However, we don't have a lot of those starting up and expanding or, you know, we have less of them. Yeah. How, how many, I mean, wasn't there kind of uh, bouts of kind of rejection letters in Wisconsin from processors, you know, kind of during the COVID day, days and stuff where you, you didn't necessarily pick if yeah. you got to be done or not, you kind of got shut off. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the names that, that, yeah. you know, they just, they, they went someplace else to get their milk. Right. Yeah. And it's in it's the small dairy farms. You know, if you're, if you're a trucker, if you stop at one stop and you fill up your whole truck and deliver it to the processor versus having to make three or four or five stops, everything, everything, every stop costs more money. So sometimes that's yeah. a hindrance to the smaller dairies. Mm-hmm. And a smaller dairy, you, you still got to work really hard. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, what is small now used to be a big dairy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to have, to have, you have, to have uh, you know, family members interested in maintaining that type of lifestyle, mm-hmm. which um, probably many of them are, but if they, can, if they can financially afford to do it. Yeah. I remember when, 
right after college, one of my college roommates for a semester bought a herd of cows from a guy that was milking, I think by Harriet, South Dakota, you know, probably the last person milking, you know, within a 50 mile radius of him, you know, hold out 80 cows, you know, and Andy had bought these cows and this guy, you know, was there when he bought them and, and hauled them off back to his larger dairy in New Salem, North Dakota. So I think the guy told him the story that in, he'd been milking cows for 37 consecutive years. And I think he'd missed like six milkings, yeah. not days, <laughs> six milkings in 37 years. And yep. he knew every one of them. One was like the day he graduated high school. Like, like he started milking, like when he was still in high school, like one, yeah. one was like, Oh, my high school graduation or, or like my dad's funeral, my <laughs> wedding. And then the next morning, that was two of them. That's, you just don't find a lot of people sign it, raising their hand for that. No, no. And that's really, uh, that wasn't always that extreme, but a lot more of that than not. Right, Mike? Well, you get to, to milk cows, you have to know how to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to have a certain, certain aptitude to keep the cows calm, but it's a, quite a commitment mm-hmm. and the reward isn't always that big. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, if, if you know, I would say if the dairy, if the, if the dairy milk, the milk got a fair price, no, always more consistent price. So people can uh, bank on that. Uh, the ch- I'm going to make this much money so I can control my expenses and stuff like that. I think there'd be more interest, but it's the risk, the risk reward is pretty high. Right. Yeah. So it can be big, but it's risk reward is pretty high. And I guess, the, you know, obviously, I mean, the, the growth of, of, of herd size and growth of farms, there becomes a huge benefit of economies of scale. And so I think that that's, you know, we've gone through this in other podcasts as well and finding those niche markets. If this is your system, you know, in an 80 cow dairy, you know, we've seen some of these smaller cheese plants open up. We've seen, you know, more of an agritourism business boom or not boom, but start up within those families. And, you know, maybe that brings um, another family member on or supports a wife at home because they're able to you know, add a bit of a niche side business to, to that already existing farm so yeah because in the in the same tenure the same time frame now not all these are driving their full-time income from beef cattle most of them are not but the size of the beef cow herd hasn't gone up right we haven't seen consolidation necessarily nationwide when it comes to the beef cow herd now we're in a contraction mode we'll see what the numbers say the next farm census because we have been doing a lot more cow slaughter those may be coming from smaller herds maybe we're seeing some people exit i've kind of heard that Southeast slaughter numbers seem a little higher in the beef cow side of things. Maybe that those are some permanent, you know, exits for some of those 10, 15, 20 cow herds in the Southeast. But, but as so far at the same time of a rampant consolidation in the dairy industry, you know, we really haven't seen much in the beef industry. Well, it's issue, issue of labor management. Right. The dairy industry is very high labor. Yeah. Very expensive investment in robotics and stuff. If you want to go that route, the beef cattle is pretty, a lot more automated. Yeah. And how much attention per day that you have to spend doing that. Yeah. So, so I can see you can, you can run smaller herds and, and without totally exhausting yourself. Well, yeah, the same guy that was milking cows that skipped six milkings in 37 years or whatever it was. I don't know those exact numbers. It was something like that. He could take six days off the first, like, week in July running beef cows. Yeah, right? yeah. Six yeah. days cows off. Grass, like, oh, right. I'll check them yeah. on Saturday, you know, yeah. otherwise... I mean, that's a, a whole different mentality Abs- and lifestyle absolutely, absolutely. than milking cows. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Most, the most young, the most dairymen or the small, smaller, smaller herds love their cows. Yeah. Or they really enjoy the, 
the process of milking cows, the personality of the cows, they you know the natures, the attributes of each of the animals. I was on a I was on a dairy no one ever heard last this summer, and they knew it said this cow here milks 175 pounds a day. Mm. This one over here milks 145 pounds of milk a day, or 90 pounds. So they, they know them that well. Yeah. So it's so there's it's not just animals. There these are parts you know big parts of the family. Yeah. yeah. The funny thing is, it's like, that's like precision farming, right? It's like, oh, we learn more about your operation. And like, uh, there's a guy in a tie stall. It's like, yep, I got it. Like, what do you want to know? You know? <laughs> it's all up here. It's like, no, you need a computer system to monitor that. It's like, well, how about I just remember it? Yeah. And I pick my cows accordingly. Yeah. And now we get so big that we have to have systems to help manage what we used to have in the back of our head. Yeah. True. It's okay. I mean, like I said, I, I don't think there's a lot of, a lot of folks uh, my brother's a veterinarian, and one of the same things that's happening in the veterinarian field is that you're not seeing as many people come back to single practitioner, you know, the hometown vet, right? I'm the vet at this vet clinic. Because what happens is, is you can never take a day off, right? right? And you get emergency calls seven days a week, weekends, nights, everything. And that taxes on you too, right? I mean, yeah, we can do that, and some people are willing to do it. But if there's a better alternative where you can have more balance in your life, you're going to gravitate towards that. Mm -hmm. Most people. Most people. I don't blame them. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. So, I mean, we've talked about these other pieces under the umbrella of the alfalfa industry. But for the alfalfa industry as a whole, um, where do you see that going? I mean, in the next five to ten years, is there anything new on the horizon that you're really excited about? Or or what are your thoughts there? I think... um, Products we look for uh, may have to be in combination with something else. How, how well would this do with another crop intermixed species? Uh, we still uh, we still need to increase, increase our yields. Our, co- our main competition is corn silage, who is a one-cut system. I'm not saying alfalfa is going to be a one-cut system. But our, our reward of running all our equipment across the fields has will have to be better. Uh, I think there's, there's still improvement we can make in consistency of quality. So, so whether it's first crop, second crop, third crop, we have more of a uniform consistency of quality coming off our field. So it makes it a lot easier for the nutritionist to have a bunk that's been blended together all, all day long, all summer long, so that the consistency of the quality of the haylage will be, will be there. So I think, again, we need to, I would say yield. Uh, again, everybody talks about persistence, but I think we need, to be, we need to be able to have persistence to plow down good stands for the crop rotations. Mm. Not not to keep them longer, but to have more credits that can attribute to the uh, next yeah, crop sure. that we that we uh, plow down. Yeah. But just just, <laughs> just to have a consistent quality, better consistent quality than. Yep. For sure, and and that's you know if, um, we can talk a little bit about traded alfalfa, but if you're doing a Roundup Ready alfalfa or Harv Extra, you know, and your your cost structure goes up by you know, sometimes a factor of two if you're using both those traits right. versus conventional alfalfa makes it a little harder to rotate it after three years to use it as not only a forage source, but also as a nitrogen source coming into the new crop. Does that, does that happen at all? Do you see people trying to get longer stands out of those more expensive traded products or are they just paying for it and cycling it just as fast? I'm going to guess just paying for it. Wow. Why I say that is, is that a lot of it would be on dairy, rot- dairy rotations yep. and they need that ground for manure. And that's if you got if you got a lot of a lot of livestock, you got you need a, you need a place to go with the manure. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking more of a Wisconsin play. It, yeah. could, be, it could be different than yeah. different states. The, uh, there is not the same intensity from a dairy population around here. You know, we have some dairies. They're not 
as close together, so they're not competing over the acres. There's a little more space mm-hmm. for manure management plans and stuff. But that is changing real mm-hmm. fast mm-hmm. in just in our backyard. And I'm just speaking about our backyard. Oh, yeah. Um, we are the next, I think South Dakota is the next Idaho or Panhandle of Texas or whatever the last big growth area was from a dairy population. Yeah. And we're yeah. the next spot. Mm-hmm. We have an abundance of water, both surface water and underground water, uh, which is what's driving people out of the panhandle or stopping them from expanding in western Kansas and panhandle of Texas. And I think that I think we bottomed out at 83,000 dairy cows in the state of South Dakota about five, six, seven, eight years ago. And I think we could be three times that mm-hmm. in within less than 10 years. Yeah. So, and that with that though, I mean, we've seen this in pockets of, of South Dakota. It does change the cropping systems just a little bit oh, with yeah. alfalfa back in the rotation. I mean, they're contract growing alfalfa, other landowners are contract growing alfalfa for these dairies. So certainly something to watch out for, not watch out for, just be aware of. And yeah. Yeah. Two dairies just east of us getting built. One's 11,000 head, one's 12,500 head. I think they're going to own, I think 40 acres of farm ground, right? And it just mm-hmm. happens to be on a chunk of, of one of the building grounds. Everything else is purchased. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of feet. I think it's like 8,000 acres of alfalfa and twenty to 25,000 acres of corn silage every year that they're going to buy. So that's that's a big change from what we've been doing. Sure. Yeah. New varieties, new systems, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so. their, their, their job is to milk cows. Yeah. yeah. To balance rations. Yeah. And that's where consistency across cuts, across geograph- new geography is just really important. Mm-hmm. It's also, I think we found as people have been trying to raise corn silage for those operations in the beginning, right? Cause it takes a lot. You got to cut all the silage the first year and there's no manure to go out. And we were in that area that's not had a lot of manure. We're, they're struggling to get the corn silage yields outside of that system that you described outside of that alfalfa, you know, ground prep plus yep. years of manure. We, we can't raise very easily at all we can't raise 24 25 ton silage and we should be able to because it matches up our corn yields been able to do it from a grain standpoint but we can't get the silage yields mm. so we've got to get into that system first before we can i think really take advantage it of makes it. sense yeah yeah good awesome what did we miss anything that uh that you're just dying to talk about when you came to the podcast <laughs> did we hit it all i think you did i think we did well i think yeah. we did yeah. I enjoyed this. Yeah. It's great. I mean, alfalfa is one of the major crops in the United States. And mm-hmm. I know um, a lot of people, we just, there isn't as many sources of information and kind of finding out, well, it's, it's been a consolidation in the breeding industry. And it's something that we pointed out some reasons of why most people in the beef industry, you know, tend to use it more as a low input crop, you know, just kind of a, a punt kind of activity, right? I'll do yeah. 40 acres of this, yeah. 30 acres of this over here and not trying to figure out how to, get the most value out of it yeah. and what the advantages of modern breeding can come sure. to the table. Yeah. 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 Plus the sales market. I mean, if you have beef cow, like you don't sell hay, like you just can't, I mean, but you can, but you totally can. should. <laughs> there are lots it's of scenarios okay. where you should put it up good enough where you can sell it mm-hmm. and yeah. sell the really good stuff and then keep the, mm-hmm. the poor stuff. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, good quality hay every year is, is sellable and it's hot top dollar. Yep. Hay that gets rained on, you can feed that to beef cattle. Right. You go. Which, hap- <laughs> yeah. which happens. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Well, this right. has been fun. Appreciate the time to sit down with you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for all that you've done. Th- thanks for the invitation. All right. You're appreciate welcome. It. Thanks for uh, tuning in to another episode of Roots and Ruminants. Uh, appreciate you listening.